it's sunday february 7th welcome to a new episode of bazaar i'm your host sid and joining me today in the studio is my friend sankesh jain who you know as a very good analyst i really look forward to doing shows with him because he brings a really unique perspective to the show so sankesh very warm welcome to the show it's it's really good to have you always good to speak with you sid looking forward all right buddy so this week we are going to talk about the recent union budget that our finance minister nirmala sitaraman came out with on 1st february and you know there's been a lot of coverage on this topic i mean on all news channels on a lot of podcasts as well lot of coverage of the union budget and what we try to do with bazaar is that we want to simplify things for the aam aadmi we we just want to break it down so you know we are not going to talk about everything that was mentioned at the budget we are going to cover three four major things that the normal person should be aware of and a day before the budget if you remember the indian markets were down quite a bit and i think a lot of people were actually expecting that it would go further down because people not were not expecting the budget to be that positive and the exact opposite happened the markets registered a 4% gain in a single day i i think a lot of people must be happy looking at their portfolios at the moment and if you if you see in this week itself the markets have gained around 8% the sensex has breached the 50000 mark once again and i think the bull run just doesn't seem to end i mean that's how things were after the budget but my question is sankesh do you think the budget was uh, so good to warrant a 8% rise in the markets one of the most important things here is that market reacts to negative news as well as positive news right said in this day on the budget day we say that market also reacts to a neutral news so what we were expecting from the markets was that there would be a covid tax we were expecting an increase in long term capital gains or even a billionaire taxes that were being expected from all sorts of experts industrial experts but seeing that the budget was silent on any taxes uh, they just left the markets up and the second thing is that everyone was very sure of tobacco taxes right now the <laughs> itc is one of the highlight stocks uh, from the budget you have to see itc had a rally of 6% on the budget day why because no talk of any tobacco taxes in excess that's that's optimism for the market i don't know when was the last time i saw itc rally more than 2% in a day so <laughs> that was a sight you know i i agree that a lot of people were expecting taxes like covid cess was one of them also wealth tax and billionaire tax i don't know exactly what the name for that was but there was some negative news that people were expecting that would come out but nothing happened of that sort and i was also reading through the pre budget analysis and a lot of people were very sure about it like the covid cess thing most of them were predicting that th- this it's going to happen but they did not push this one out in this budget i think that's one of the reasons why the markets was so high up i, I don't think a 4% gain in a single day or a weekly gain of 8% is warranted i mean the budget was good it was positive they were spending a lot of money on infrastructure and like we'll cover this in later on as well but i don't know i mean 8% does seem like a very reactionary speculative gain on the markets front but about the budget there were a lot of key points that we think you know were interesting and we we want to cover this so i want to start with your favorite sector there is a plan to set up an asset reconstruction company that will take over the npas of the bank and then the asset reconstruction company will bundle 
those NPAs and they will sell it to AIFs and other investors. I mean, the idea of being able to offload all your bad business that you've done and be done with your responsibility. What do you think about this? Like, do you think, is this going to help the banking sector in any way, like setting up a bad bank? Uh, so regarding bad banks, uh, this is not a new concept. Um, this concept was pushed by Deputy Governor Viral Acharya. He, he even asked for a bad bank. Now, one of the most interesting things about bad banks is why not the current recovery agencies, right? So why not the current SPVs uh, on board? The question is always about the incentives. Now, what is the incentive for a new asset reconstruction company to take these loans off the books of the existing banks, right? So will that incentive be a negative incentive? That is to say that of a coercion way of telling them you have to take these loans up. No, that, that is a question which, which is unanswered, right? Now, those incentives will be documented. I'm sure those will be coming up. But till then, uh, it, it doesn't seem to hold good either for the banks or for the asset reconstruction companies. Why not good for the banks is because let's suppose if the banks wants to offload their asset or the NPA, the non-performing assets, what is the revenue hit they are going to take? Not, not just the revenue hit, what is the capital hit they are going to take? Let's suppose if a thousand crore loan is being offloaded at 400 crores, the banks would be taking a step back. One of the good things which could happen is that uh, for the consortium loans, right? Let's suppose say there is a joint lending forums. Uh, there is a loan where two or three banks are coming up and giving those loans. So every time those loans are up for discussion for uh, selling the assets, all these four banks have to come together. So in an asset reconstruction company, it could be very well said that all these four banks would be offloading their asset and only one decision-making authority would be there. So at that front, it could be a good thing, but overall, it doesn't seem to make any sense as on date because we don't have any clear-cut plan on these ARCs. Yeah, because we were talking about this, like who's going to take the loss? If the yes. bank is going to sell a thousand crore book at 400 crore to the ARC, then they can do it themselves, right? I mean, why do you want to sell it to the ARC if you can do it yourself? So who is going to take the loss and how is it going to work? It's very ambiguous. So the government coming out and saying that they're going to set up a asset reconstruction company. It's good. I mean, it's a positive thing to come out and say, but exactly how it's going to work out is still very ambiguous, isn't it? It is said because it, it, it always been in government policies where you want to offload the banks or you want to take the burden out of the bank. Somebody has to take that hit right now. It doesn't matter if it takes a bank or it is a an ARC, but ultimately uh, how sooner they are going to do it. That's the question here. But we'll see how it works out. As on date, we don't have any plans in this. So uh, it's just up to those uh, uh, documents which will be coming up on these things. Exactly. And I also feel that if you really want to tackle the NPA situation, then you have to direct the, the pain where it actually arises from. So the reason why NPAs actually happen in the first place is because you are giving loans to people who are not going to pay you back. So you were talking about mudra loans and also about infrastructure lending, which is compulsory for certain banks. That is one of the reasons why, you know, NPAs have bubbled up in recent times. I mean, that's not precisely the reason that's one factor because of which NPAs happen. So there was no news on that front. I mean, they were just, okay, we want to set up an ARC, but what are you doing to plug those NPAs? So no news on that front. I mean, it remains to be seen how this bad bank could benefit the NPA situation in the long run, but I'm not very optimistic. I, I don't think it's going to like change a lot in terms of NPAs. And I do remember you were also telling me that 
they are also setting up something called as a development financial institution so what exactly is that so a development one of the things is that development financial institutions like the banking sectors is going to provide for loans right so there is no difference in the the mode of what they are going to do but then the question arises what is the need for a development financial institution right now mm-hmm. the the story of a development financial institutions in our country started well in 1947 in jawaharlal nehru's regime now the need for a development financial institution is because of uh, the balance sheet problem that the banks faces now when you look at a balance sheet there is an asset there is a liability now what you see is that only those numbers but you do not see the terms or the tenure of those loans or the assets right so that is one of the things which which if you are to focus on you will get to know why development financial institutions will being set up now let's suppose there is a bank which is getting mid term fundings which is getting short term funding say a current account or a fixed deposit and that bank has to give a loan for term loans say 30 years term loan 35 years term loans then mm. there is an asset mismatch and then there's a tenure mismatch so you're basically borrowing for 2 to 5 years and you're going to lend it out for 15 years that doesn't work out for banks right so in 1947 every bank was not willing to give long term loans now what did happen is that it hampered the infrastructure growth in india so in in 1951 our cabinet was formed right so the ministry of commerce and industry at that time tt krishnamachari proposed for the development financial institutions in india T.T. Krishnamachari, as you can envision, had always said that he is one of the father of Indian startups. You could say so. Under his direction, development financial institutions were being set up at that time in India. Two of the most prominent development financial institutions, which you can foresee today, is our modern-day uh, ICICI Bank, right? And on that basis, in 1960s, the RBI also set up a development financial institution bank, which is today's IDBI Bank. Now, having this background of development financial institutions, we get to know that development financial institutions are set up with a primary purpose for what it is being given. So, in 2021 budget, development financial institution is being set up for infrastructure funding alone. Now, the question arises in today's term. are banks not willing to fund infrastructure companies which is not a case there are a lot of many banks which are willing to fund the infrastructure companies now the specific purpose of this development financial institution is again will be dependent upon the regulations the frameworks which the government is going to bring on board because fundings for specific sectors is ongoing in india and it is going at a very good pace this is something which we'll have to look forward to i do not see one of the very clear or a layman reasons why this could be set up we could be wrong obviously if we are it's so good because taxpayers money would be saved but let's wait and see what happens here i mean you were speaking about idbi a few moments back and you know the npa ratio of idbi is somewhere around 28% so that did not turn out that good i mean uh, the business of lending to infrastructure companies it's not i mean it's a very long term play obviously and the interest rates also are charged accordingly but it's a very difficult business to make money in right because the reason why banks are not like not all the banks but a lot of banks are not willing to come out and give infrastructure loans or long term loans is because uh, the chance of them turning out bad is pretty high i mean we don't know the exact probability but we know that infrastructure development in, in india has always been 
very slow it's been very bureaucratic process so again i mean I, we we don't know how much of a utility a development financial institution would bring and you know how it would spearhead the infrastructure growth in the country because it's i think it's only a 20000 crore year marking like they have allocated 20000 crore for this uh, bank so that's i mean in terms of absolute numbers it's a big amount but if you compare it to other banks it's it's not that big i mean 20000 crore is relatively small and uh, talking about major highlights i would like to now shift the conversation towards the fiscal deficit number which i think which is the most important part of the conversation that you know the government is spending a lot of money i mean this budget is all about just spending money they have not really imposed any you know taxes on tobacco like you mentioned or capital gains tax it's all about the government coming out and saying that you know they'll spend a lot of money on these sectors and without any big boost in tax collections this means that they have to borrow a lot of money right i mean they have to borrow a lot of money to be able to spend it what this will do is firstly it will push the fiscal deficit to 9.5% which is a very big number i mean historically we've we've had you know fiscal deficit bounce between 3 to 5% but 9.5 is a very big number and also it will impact the debt to gdp ratio but i don't know like it's not going to be that adverse like the, the debt to gdp is not in a very bad situation even after all the borrowing that the government is doing so sankesh what is your opinion on this number and what exactly is the reason like is there any particular reason why the fiscal deficit is shooting so high so generally right fiscal deficit uh, when we are talking about fiscal deficit fiscal deficit is what right it is the excess of expenditure over revenue right now if you take it for a quarter it's for a quarter if you take it for a year it's for a year now generally the government presents fiscal deficits for quarters and for a year right now one of the most important things and right which, which is one of the most beautiful things about the current budget is that uh, the government has been very transparent with the number 9.5 percentage kudos to the government for uh, bringing this out but the reasons for this is very important to be seen right the target let's suppose if from 2014 onwards when uh, nda1 nda2 has been coming up into the picture the government was always keen on keeping the fiscal deficit pretty low right now this was against the policies of the major democratic or let's suppose the developed countries for us and for japan the the borrowings are at most of 300 or 400% so uh, why this government was keen on keeping the fiscal deficit numbers low is again uh, something which is to be seen in a very different topic but let's suppose the target of fiscal deficit of financial year 2021 uh, before the covid pandemic hit was 4.5 percentage and what it turned out in fy 1920 was 4.6 percentage right this was against when the gdp was at 3.5 percentage this was well before covid and we were all blaming the government for <laughs> doing a poor performance right this was before covid now given the covid was struck everybody was expecting a fall in fiscal deficit given why because already a poor performance of an economy but the government projected a good estimate at 9.5 percentage which everybody was keen on getting it why because 7 above 7% was expected and the government coming up with 9.5% had only made it clear that at least the numbers are not hidden or numbers are not tampered upon now what is the reason for low fiscal deficit first of all right in in the years of 2014 to 16 we had the government's one of the most major revenue apart from the obvious defense and all 
would be food subsidies right now these are the tds systems which we get the otherwise they're called as a ration systems right mm. so what happens is that from the farmers we procure at msps and in the ration shops we sell at a minimum a lower price so in tamil nadu it's literally at 1 rupee you could get a kilo of rice so the differential amount of the msp and the ration price is being subsidized by the food corporation of india where does the food corporation of india get its money from the government subsidizes in the form of food subsidy this is what we called as food subsidy in india hmm. so in 2014 to 17 the government changed its direction what it did it said food corporation of india to borrow on its own so food corporation of india approached national savings fund that is a post office so post office was then giving loans to fci and fci in in other sense post office was buying the bonds of fci and fci was getting this amount to fund the pds systems mm. in the current year what happened is that this amount increased a lot why because we have a pandemic in the picture india is a food surplus country no doubt on it but somebody has to fund the excess of msp being paid to the farmers right so who is going to take that brand the government is going to take that brand why because you cannot stop your procurement your procurement has to go on this is something which is peculiar to india like the farm you always keep your farmers fed <laughs> so <laughs> yeah so uh, this funding like which was 75000 crores in 1920 has increased to 3.44 trillion in the current year why because the government decided that they will start funding the food corporation of india again now this huge increase is one of the main reasons why we see an increased expenditure on the government side if you are looking the public sector enterprises along with the government as a whole you will see that the fiscal deficit was almost at 6 or 7 at this place if you keep this expenditure into account so 9.5 is not a surprise something which we expect yeah so i mean to summarize a factor leading to a high fiscal deficit number is that fci is now going to be funded directly from the budget which was happening before from the post office i mean it was just a very clever way of routing your money from one place and not including it in the budget expenditure because post office's money is also you know it's it's taxpayers money it's actually being used to fund the food subsidies but now that they are uh, giving money to fci directly from the budget so that is the reason why one of the reasons why you know we are seeing such a high fiscal deficit number but and this is a very interesting angle i mean you know i i did not know about the food corporation uh, thing i mean so in- there are more skeletons to unearth i like said if i were to speak about the the post office right like this is one of the things which i heard from an expert some few years ago now what he was saying is that if you were to see the post office balance sheet the income of post office is nothing but the premiums it is going to get or the deposits it is going to get and the expenditure for the post office is nothing but how much maturity amount it pays to the people who are coming to claim their amounts yeah. so it is a very crude way of keeping your uh, income and expenditure account like that that person that that expert i really don't remember who it was but i remember the story he said that there is no concept of balance sheet in a post office there is like the, what comes in is income and what goes out is expenditure and net on post office there at a profit so <laughs> we'll see to whether how it works like this or not something an interesting part here to add on so yeah definitely and wow. uh the food subsidy is just one part of the fiscal deficit number but there was a lot of expenditure on infrastructure as well which pushed the 
the deficit number beyond 5%. So on that topic, I mean, you know, the government has really opened their purse when it comes to capital expenditure. A lot of money is being spent on healthcare because obviously, you know, the current pandemic is still ongoing and we have this vaccination drive of, you know, vaccinating the frontline workers and then people who are above 50 years. So a lot of money is being spent on healthcare infrastructure. Also, I think this was not really highlighted, but I think it's very important that money is being earmarked for production linked incentive schemes as well in 13 sectors, which will actually boost make in India schemes. This will ensure that the production happens in India. So I think that's also a very positive thing to note here. Then as always, you know, money is being spent on roads and highways, railways, infrastructure. But the big question, however, you know, remains that can all these infrastructure projects be executed? I mean, a lot of money is being spent on these, but can this be actually executed and actually make a difference? That's a very big question. What do you think? Uh, touching on CapEx, right? So CapEx is always the heart of any budget you're going to take up. A budget has to be about CapEx a lot. Now, one of the drivers that we have to add here is like correlation does not mean causation, right? No, does Just because two things are moving in the same direction doesn't mean that one is causing the other. And this is one of the things which I always say about uh, increased expenditure doesn't mean increased quality. So you should always be careful on that front. But why do you make capital expenditure important part is because RBI in one of its notification had laid multiplier effects. Now, what does a multiplier effect it means? So let's suppose a government is spending one rupee on something. Uh, it's a capital expenditure or a revenue expenditure. But the government is spending that one rupee on something, what effect it will have on a private sector? So in case of capital expenditure, where the government spends one rupee, say the uh, central government or the state government, it has a potential increase of almost 2.1. So when whenever there is a capital outlay, that is a non-defense outlay, it has a multiplier effect of 2.1 on the center. That means mm. for one rupee spending of public money, there is a 2.1 spending of private money. So expenditure mm. on the private front is a good thing. Why? Because Private expenditure is income for someone or the other. Also, taxes come in for the government. So this is one of the reasons why capital expenditure is the heart of the budget. Now, what do you mean by capital expenditure or capital outlay? It is simply the investment which you're going to make or an expenditure which is going to last for the government for a year or more. Right? Hmm. It could be spent on infrastructure, land or R&D. It doesn't matter. Now, coming to the numbers which the government has given to us. The capital expenditure, right, which was budgeted expenditure in 2021 before the pandemic struck was 4.12 lakh crore rupees. Now, our finance minister has said that there is an increase of 34.5 percentage from that budgeted and to now, which is being projected for the next year is 5.54 lakh crore. Now, what we have to see here, Sid, is that our finance minister has said there is going to be an increase of 34.5 percentage of increase in capex in the next year which seems a very, very huge number, right? And it is, yeah. and this, this gives jitters to us, right? Like, because yeah. such a huge increase having a pandemic, which will always be like positive for us also. But in page eight of the consolidated financial statements presented by the government, right? So which is more important to be seen. So we have a column called IBR, internal and extra budgeted resources, right? What IBR consists of is PSUs, Indian Railways, which includes the Indian Railways and also the government. So therefore, government and its all its arms are together bundled up 
and the entire revenue expenditure has been seen here in ibr uh, numbers so the expenses of financial year 1920 ibr was 9.7 lakh crore which by estimate was increased to 10.84 lakh crore the planned expenditure of ier for financial year 2122 is a mere 11.37 lakh crore now when you are going to compare these numbers the actual growth for capex which you are going to see here is 4.4 percentage right so the differential of 34.5 percentage to 4.4 percentage of the actual growth as per the government numbers itself is something which we have to see in the next year to see what these numbers turn out to be right so this is something that which is very interesting if you are going to read the consolidated financial statements of the government which it has presented here so i mean we don't know if that was a mistake a genuine mistake on part of the government uh, you know in the presentation of the numbers or whether it was intentional we cannot comment on it <laughs> but uh, the actual growth in the expenditure is going to be just 4.4% so if you are thinking that you know there's a 34.5% increase year on year uh, that's not true i mean the actual situation is that the actual increase in the expenditure is going to be only 4.4% and i think that's very interesting the way that they have gift wrapped this number and they are showing a 34.5% increase is again very interesting but we are, we no one to comment on it we don't know what i think it could be a genuine mistake we cannot say much about that but like again when you talk about capital expenditure and the multiplier effect i think the most important part here is the execution because you know i'll just give you an example let's say that the government is giving me a 1000 crore rupees if they give me a 1000 crore rupees to build a bridge in my community okay now what a bridge will do is it will speed up transportation it will decongestionize the community you know better transport means that people will be more productive uh, more business means more jobs will be created so just by building a bridge theoretically i am improving the community around me but in reality let's say if an inspector from the government comes after 5 years and they see that the bridge is still not completed i mean you know they gave me the 1000 crore out of which i have invested around 800 crore in building the bridge but i have not completed it so you know that's money blocked i mean that 800 crore it it has been blocked in a bridge which is not functional so if you look around you you'll see a lot of infrastructure which was not even completed so you know all that money is blocked in bricks and cement so like you said you know there's a very big difference. it depends yeah so it's so one of the one of the most important theory is that the works of infrastructure development right it, it it goes on two fronts one is a central government one is a state government which which i always add to it because uh, the way i see it state governments are always hampered by elections right so let's suppose you have infrastructure projects which are going before the elections now once the elections are over that comes a different party then uh, then obviously these projects are stopped right now the contractors are changed and they are handed over to a different person so this is something which we see in every state it's not particular to some states it is there in every state in in response to the central government expenditure right on on what they do i fairly am positive i i fairly uh, see to it that their projects have been sooner and now this is not particular to any single source of uh, ministry but across all ministries i seen that there is a sign of a positive note on their gestation but as you have said on state expenditures on state uh, infrastructures we do see 
a lot of drag even today yeah so i mean you know i i appreciate the government coming out and you know going on a spending spree but you need to remember that the problems won't go away by just throwing money at it you know someone needs to work and someone needs to make it happen you know the execution is very important here and we'll see i mean the infrastructure spending it's a very positive thing because india needs it if it needs to become a developed nation we need to spend a lot of money on infrastructure so it's a very positive thing in the budget i applaud the government you know coming out and you know going on a spending spree but let's see how that works out and you know moving on there was news on the privatization and fdi front as well and there were some real positives from that so a 74% fdi will be now allowed in the insurance sector subject to certain conditions and the government is also planning to privatize two banks so we don't know the names of those banks but they will come out and privatize those banks they will sell stake in those banks so that is good news but i think the show stopper for me was that you know government telling that lic is going to come out with its ipo in the financial year 2022 that's going to be one big ipo right i think that's going to be the biggest ipo in india yeah given lic holds 70% of india's insurance business right now and lic is lic is another post office you could see like post office has its reach all over india so lic is just the second post office you could say it it has its reach all over india you can see lic at every nook and corner you can see lic in share markets you can see lic being a stakeholder of every major Uh, listed companies in india so there is no end where lic is not there lic owns a bank so one of the most important part of insurance business right so we have two directions one privatization of lic then secondly you are bringing in the foreign insurance companies into india you're opening up your F- fdis right so making a leeway of uh, how much 25% in excess of the existing 49% so you're leaving it at 74% that is one number less than two thirds stake in indian insurance companies the highlight here would be that our finance minister said it would be with safeguards so in 2015 right so this number was increased from 26% to 49% and if you see the safeguards placed in 2015 no major insurance business that is bajaj alliance canara hsbc future general shriram life they did not see an increase in their fdi holding why because the safeguards prevented them from investing more in india now what would be the additional safeguards to hold 74% again we'll have to see whether the insurance companies will be coming in india or not but safeguards is is, is a jargon word right mm-hmm. unless and otherwise it is clear white on paper we'll never get to know but on lic's front we are getting good competition for lic uh, we have hdlc life you have sbi life going on a future more lic more insurance companies is going to join the bandwagon what we have to see is how the lic management is going to take forward seeing that uh, ipo is coming up and private sectors are going to own this business so it's going to be an interesting for the next 5 years for the insurance sector as a whole we'll see to it yeah a 74% fdi does not mean that you know tomorrow all the foreign companies are going to come in india obviously the safeguards are something that you know need to be looked more in detail and whether that makes it easy for a foreign company to actually come into india so that's a good point also 
I remember you were telling me that the privatization of the banks, the the government is planning to offload their stake in two banks, but the names are not known. But they, I think the RBI or I don't know, like who came out and said that they are not gonna sell stake in SBI and PNB. So this is something which we were already expecting, right? I mean, I I don't think the government is ever gonna sell stake in SBI. There was not an explicit statement in regards to those banks, but RBI, right? After the budget, we had the RBI monetary policy, right? Which was in line with the budget. You you didn't see any uh, increase in repo rates and the RBI was opening its private markets. But one of the things which RBI made clear, right? Now, after the monetary policy was that banks will be performing in, in a proper way, right? And the, the, their take on PSUs, what, what the government has said about the offload, it was more or less telling that or pointing towards that uh, those will be the small banks right no which will be those banks will have to see forward but i genuinely doubt that uh, pnb or indian bank would be the ones being offloaded which by the way if they, if they were being offloaded right it, it would do so much of good to the the overall banking sector we're seeing that uh, these banks hold huge amount of cash and getting bureaucrats out of the picture and getting in a sound management. I think RBI is also looking forward for that. Yeah, I mean, the government is not in the business of doing business. And as an economy, we will move forward only when, you know, government pulls out of these key sectors and takes on more of a governance role than of a management role and let the private sector do its job because at the end of the day, economics work out. Uh, Which we are certain about, right? One of the things that after... 2014, right? We we could certainly say that the government, uh, the NDA one and the NDA two, both were on this front saying that exactly the things that you said that government doesn't have any business in doing business, and and so rightfully they are making up for privatization and capitalism. What seems to be uh, only take is that could crony capitalism be avoided? Um, mm. Something which we have not yet been uh, taken up out in India, which still exists. That's one thing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, inequality of income is one thing that comes to mind, which could be like once capitalism takes over, then always there's the case of inequality of income. But I think that's a topic for another day. And, you know, so so we've covered a lot of topics here, talking about the fiscal deficit number, the infrastructure spending, the privatization and the FDI thing. But I think most people are interested in the developments that happen on the direct tax and indirect tax front. So like, I I don't think there was a lot of activity in that space, but there were certain changes that were made in the direct tax and the indirect tax front. So what was, you know, one or two major things or major highlights that you feel something that, you know, we should bring forward to the the people who are listening to this show, like from the perspective of direct tax, right? So so let's suppose in direct tax, we'll, we'll take about the perspective of the markets. From the perspective of markets, we had we were very unclear on ULIPs and mutual funds and insurance, right? Because ULIPs were a hybrid of insurance and mutual funds. Now the the act has made clear what ULIPs would mean. ULIPs have will be taxed as such as mutual funds, so that is given. So uh, the taxation of ULIPs has been made very clear in this budget. So one of the good notes to note. The second one, right, would be goodwill. So goodwill, you won't get any depreciation on goodwill. Goodwill's capital gain is also given specifically how it would be calculated, which defeats one of the prominent case laws in income tax, that is the B.C. Srinivasa Shetty case law, right? So this 
uh, amendment is overturning that judgment as a whole then few important things in direct taxation which is important uh, other than this would be for salary persons right so, so one of the most interesting numbers which i was getting in provident fund was that almost 1.5 lakh subscribers to pf right so they have a lot of corpus in employee provident fund so there is this one hni person which uh, obviously the names would not be disclosed by the government they said that this person holds one or three crores in his provident fund account so there are almost 15 people who are holding uh, more than like 30 or 40 40 crores in the provident fund account wow. uh, and one of the things which we have to remember is that this is a triple e provision that is exempt exempt and exempt right and so the positive impact again here is that the government has said that for more than 2 lakh 50000 rupees whatever you're going to invest in provident fund you are going to be taxed for those interest so those people will be moving out pf the important thing here is that pf promises you a return of 8% which is like well above the market debts right one of the most positive direction or one of the most thought about process which i see in this budget was uh, the revision of the epf figures exemption figures by the government in direct taxation coming to indirect taxation said indirect taxation there is a negative impact which the government has given said for the gst return filers right they would be very well knowing that the inputs the input tax credit that you can claim has to come from the purchaser that is you get the bill you pay him the amount and it is also necessary for that person to file his return on time for you to get the credit now these were just in rules regulations and notifications being issued by the government but in this budget they have made it as, as a part and parcel of the act itself so section 16 which talks about this has made it very clear that only when the purchaser has uploaded his return on time you are going to get the input tax credit in your account and you are eligible for it which which genuinely is is not proper seeing the business scenarios in india like why would you be punished for the supplier not uploading his return on time so do we have an opposite or a contradictory viewpoint here we have so there is this one interesting delhi high court case right so this case is arise india limited versus the commissioner of trade and taxes it has held that denial to restrict itc to the selling dealers let's suppose say your dealer has not uploaded his return on time cannot you cannot deny the itc to a genuine purchaser so this high court judgment still holds good which i think is up for challenge in coming days we'll have to see to it but something which the government needs to act immediately is to make ease of business duly a right for the citizen and not these amendments which shake the basic edifice of uh, the the gst as a whole that's that's important here sir yeah i think very well said about the you know the depreciation on goodwill thing as well like i cannot name the client that i managed when i was uh, working you know on a client and like they had a huge goodwill amount i mean for those companies this is it's sort of bittersweet because you you cannot claim the goodwill anymore and i think from but from a long term perspective i think this is a very good amendment to bring because uh, the logical conclusion here is that like goodwill appreciates like for whom does goodwill depreciates like right? that that's yeah. a logical thing to talk about exactly. but yeah right we, we are going to have a, a stoppage that right yeah so i mean people use that flaw in the logic of the government like allowing depreciation on goodwill and then save taxes on 
you know on the depreciation so that's going to stop and i think that's a progressive decision that they've taken so kudos to them on that front also like you mentioned the uh, developments in the gst space they have been good as well so there was no negative news again you know no covid says no tax on the wealthy again that's the reason why this budget was taken in such a in a very positive light so that's it from our side sankesh again pleasure to have you on the show i think i'll i'll have to call you back for the uh, lic episode i think i think we should cover lic as a separate topic and a, as a separate episode so thank you always a pleasure to be talking with you said you you open minds up very good so always be to be there on your presence thank you buddy thanks and i, I really like your analytical uh, way of looking at things and you really you know add value to the conversation so always you know looking forward to your opinion on things and uh, looking forward to have you back on the show so thanks thanks for coming on thank you sir all right all right guys that does it for today's edition of bazaar people on the show may have certain recommendations to buy or sell but don't buy or sell based on what you hear do your own research before you take any investing decision you can reach out to us at the bazaar podcast at gmail.com let us know what you think of the show if you have any suggestions any companies or any industry that you would like us to cover just hit me up reach out to us and take care we'll see you next week